Our scripture reading for this morning is from Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 3 and verses 13 through 35. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they, when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as, as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in, with, so he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. The word of the Lord. All right, good morning, guys. Let's try it again. Good morning, guys. There we go. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor here. And we're starting a new sermon series this morning um, called Shadows of Christ. And the point of this series really is we're going to be going into the Old Testament. We're going to be looking at people and events and things that foreshadow and point to the hero of the story, the big story, which is Jesus. And and, um, kind of interesting that we're starting this series by actually sitting in Luke, but you'll see why. Um, I think this is a great way for us to kind of bridge into this discussion um, because um, Jesus tells us some very important things about how we approach the Old Testament in this passage. All right, when we think of our lives, um, we often think of them as like a line, right? Like in history class, when you, when you saw different people's lives laid out on the map, there were these timelines. You know what I'm talking about? Like there was a little point at the beginning. Like for me, you know, 1969, born, right? That actually happened. And then, you know, it keeps going all the way till today, right? There'd be some sort of arrow or something because I'm not dead yet. Um, and so, but, you know, Pastor Trailhead Church, and then there'd be dots all along the way of significant events that took place. 
in the course of my life, when I look back over my life, it, it is kind of like a line, right? I mean, it's a series of, of events and, and, and things that happened, and um, it's like A moved to B, and B moved to C, and C moved to D, but the reality is, I mean, as we really look at our lives, it doesn't, it's not that clean, is it? It's not like a line. It, it kind of meanders. It goes over here, and then it goes over there, and then it, sometimes it's like a pinball, you know, bouncing rapidly. Sometimes it's like a river that just is finding its easiest path. Um, it's not linear. Life is not linear. Life is much more like a choose-your-own-adventure story. You guys ever read these as a kid? You know what I'm talking about? Some of you are like, yeah. Some of you are like, no, I never had that. Sorry, your childhood was robbed of joy. These were wonderful. Um, essentially, what would happen is, is you would read these books, and then you would get to a certain point And you as a reader would be given the opportunity to make a choice for the protagonist, for the main character. And when you made a choice for the protagonist, you, you, you know, you changed the direction of the story, right? There were like 15 different endings in these wonderful books. And so you would go back and read it like 15 times because you wanted to find out how everything resolved each different way, right? This is, this is really much more like our lives, right? So you follow in the story along and little Johnny gets up in the morning and eats his breakfast and walks to school listening to the birds, right? That's not very realistic. He's killing small animals as he goes. And as he's nearing school, the sky breaks open and suddenly, a, 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 I don't know, UFO appears, right? You've got to love those two little words because they always trigger something monumental. When suddenly, right? It's like you're coming along. When suddenly, all right, now's a monumental choice. I get to either run away or throw a rock at the UFO or, or just go peacefully into the light. I don't know. You know, like, like little Johnny's got some choices there. And that's the way our lives are. The difference, though, is we don't have a narrator floating around behind us yelling when suddenly when the choices are monumental. When you think about it, you make hundreds, you make thousands of choices every single day. I mean, little things like from what you're going to wear what shoes you'll put on your feet, what food you're going to stick in your mouth, whether or not you're going to exercise, who you're going to speak to and how you speak to them. Now, some of those choices we know are, are fairly monumental, right? The day that I, I don't know, I asked Lauren to marry me. I knew that was a monumental moment. But the reality was, weren't there hundreds of decisions before that that were actually more monumental that led to that moment? I didn't even know it at the time. Like there wasn't this big voice that came over me and said, you know, when suddenly, right? Because letting me know, oh, wow, this one's a really important one. I better really think carefully. We're making choices all along. And every choice we make changes. So here's the thing. There's, there's an infinite number of choices, but there's only one path. And that's why, you know, we can do the little timeline thing. We have an infinite number of choices in our lives, but we only get to walk one path. So whatever choices you make ultimately determine the path you walk. And the choices you make have real and very powerful consequences on the path that you end up walking. And, and, and the reality is sometimes that path can seem really random. Sometimes it's all planned out and everything's going according to the way we want it. But there are those times, and, and sometimes those times are a lot, when, when things are not going like planned. And the choices that are in front of us are not the ones we want. They're not attractive. They're not the ones we laid out for ourselves, but we still have to choose, right? We still have to move forward in life. And sometimes it seems random. And if you're, if you're cynical, it may even seem nonsensical, right? You may end up going to the, um, 
I don't know, the existential side of things and, and, you know, just saying there is no meaning in life other than the meaning we create for ourselves because it is such a random collection of choices and, and life is not just, I mean, really, it gets way more complex when you look at it in, in terms of real society where my choices bounce off your choices and your choices bounce off mine and pretty soon we see the complexity of the course of our lives. But the Bible tells us, I mean, as those who are Christ followers, those that are coming and saying that we view life through the lens of the Scripture, we are assured that we can, in fact, trust that God makes sense of all the random craziness. That, that there is um, a sense, a direction, a purpose to all of it, because God is telling His story through the human story. God is telling His story through our stories. There is a great storyteller, and even though we are the ones making choices and moving through life, there is one greater than us, more power with more wisdom, that ultimately is taking this story to a specific conclusion. He's moving it inexorably toward a specific place. And here's the thing. This is, this is the promise of the gospel. God tells us that ultimately, if we come to have faith in Him, if we come to rest in him, that he will tell a better story for us than we would tell for ourselves. That's the promise of the gospel, that the great storyteller will in fact take us to a better end than we would envision and take ourselves to. And, and the key to that is learning to simply rest in the wisdom and the power of the one telling the story, to, to in, in, as scripture puts it, to walk in faith, to learn how to trust this God. And that's what I want to unpack a little bit this morning. As we kind of move into the beginning of this series, I want to take those ideas and unpack them a little bit by looking at this passage in, in Luke 24 and, and some other stuff. All right, so in Luke 24, we see two guys walking on the road to a city called Emmaus. Now, we're told the name of one of them, Cleopas. Um, we're not told the name of the other person. They're just kind of the unnamed uh, companion. Um, we don't know if it's his girlfriend or his wife or his best friend. We have no idea. There's just two people on the road to Emmaus. One of them is Cleopas. But we do know the context that, that this event takes place in. And, and I, want you, I want you to think about that for a minute because it tells us that this is, in fact, the day of the resurrection. So, so think about the events that took place just before this. These guys were what we call in the, in the broader circle of disciples of Jesus. There were the 12 disciples who were the tightest-knit group that followed Jesus day in and day out. But there was a broader circle of disciples that followed Jesus that, that were not part of that central company. These two were, were obviously part of that group. And the crucifixion of Jesus, you need to realize that that was one of those when-suddenly moments that took them completely by surprise. It was, it was like a sucker punch. They had no idea, Right? We know, we come to it and we're like, oh, of course, that's where it ends because we've read the story and we know that you know, Jesus was, was handed over by the chief priests and the scribes and, and, and Pilate in an act of self-protection crucified him. That all makes sense to us. But you need to realize that all that planning was taking place in secret. Those conversations were taking place behind closed doors. The broader circle of disciples didn't see it coming. They really thought that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem to deliver Jerusalem that he was going to be the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that would deliver Israel to her glory and become the great deliverer. So when he was betrayed and when he was crucified, it was like a sucker punch. That was one of those things coming out of left field that just knocked him sideways. And then there was another when suddenly moment that, that, that followed up right after that. <laughs> and that was Sunday morning 
when, when the ladies went to the tomb and it was empty, right? And they're coming back saying, not only is it empty, but we saw Jesus. They're like, what? <laughs> you guys are crazy, you know? Like, can we believe this crazy lady? I mean, seriously. So some of them run down there and they find the tomb empty, but they don't see Jesus. And so their, their brains are swirling at this minute. So they're walking on the road to Emmaus. It's a seven mile journey. And they're walking down this path. And you can imagine what their conversation is like. Have you, have you ever been in one of those places where your brain was just so full of an idea you couldn't help but talk about it? And you're with somebody and you're just, you're talking yourself to exhaustion. And you know, if you're talking yourself to exhaustion, you're definitely talking them to exhaustion. You know what I'm saying? Like some of you know what I'm talking about, right? Some of you are verbal processors and that's your existence every day. But, but even for all of us, there are those times when this is what just, so these guys are walking along and they're rehashing it and talking about it and they can't make sense of it, right? And so they're exhausting each other. And you know what happens when a third party walks up and they don't know anything about it. You're completely reinvigorated and you do it all over again, right? You word vomit on them. And that's what these guys do to Jesus. Jesus walks up. And he doesn't let him know who he is, right? In, in his resurrected body, I don't know how it works, right? Like he can just show up and not look like Jesus, okay? Um, I don't know if that's a, an attribute of his resurrected body or it's just Jesus doing what he does, like a miracle thing, right? Like, okay, you don't know who I am, right? So he shows up, but I love it because there's like this playfulness about it. I don't, you know, like, hey guys, what's up, right? Like he knows what they're talking about. He knows what's going on. It's like he's like, playing with them, you know, like, I'm not going to let you know who I am, but I'm going to talk to you. Right. And, and then farther down, like when, when I love this part. So they drew near to the village to which they were going and he acted like he was going to go farther. <laughs> what the heck? You know, like, it's just Jesus being like, yeah, I'll just pretend to keep going. I know you'll invite me to dinner. Okay. There we go. All right. I'm in, you know what I'm saying? Like he knows what's going to happen, but he's just playing this game with them. Like he's just like having fun with it. I love that because honestly, I mean, this storytelling stuff that we're talking about is incredibly serious, and we'll get into that. I mean, this is our lives. But even in all this serious stuff, there's a playfulness to the way God does things. It's just this, I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. But I love the glimpse you get into his character here, you know? And so he comes alongside them, and, and they have no idea who he is, and He's like, you know, hey, what's up, guys? You know, what's going on? And they're like, you don't know what you're, you don't know what's going on. So they just boom, you know, they explode the whole story on him, and they're, they're explaining it all and how it doesn't make any sense. And then look at Jesus's response in twenty-five through twenty-seven, and he said to them, "Oh, foolish ones!" I think he's being gentle here. I don't think he's rebuking them, right? I don't think he's like, you guys are fools, right? I think he's like that same kind of playfulness, like, come on, you guys, come on, because listen what he says next. And slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? You know what he's saying right there? He's saying, you guys have read the Old Testament. You've read it thoroughly. You should have seen that this was the necessary outcome of the story. This is what was coming. See, in every good story, an author will sometimes intentionally, and I think sometimes unintentionally build in foreshadowing. Now, foreshadowing is something that happens early in the story that, that kind of hints to what's coming later. And the reason foreshadowing is important is because when you get to the great climax of the story, for that climax to feel like it has integrity, 
For that climax to feel like it makes sense to the story, it has to have a certain amount of continuity with the rest of the story. And foreshadowing is an incredibly important part of the way that that we um, get someone into the story and, and get them anticipating the outcome of the story. Right? We hate those stories where the story goes all along and then all of a sudden the ending makes no sense to the story. You know what I'm saying? Like it just comes out of left field and you're like, that has nothing to do with the rest of the story. It jars us out of it. And we're like, that's, 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 you know what I'm saying? So a good story and honestly a true story will have elements of foreshadowing in it. You know why? Because the character traits that you see in the hero and in the rest of the characters are what drive to the climax, there's an element in which the story is being shaped by the players. And so you should see foreshadowings of the way those players will act and what they will do. What he's saying to them is, you guys have read the Old Testament. You're thoroughly familiar with the Old Testament. You should see that this was, in fact, the only possible solution. That's what he says. He goes, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? If what he's saying is if you read the Old Testament right, it only makes sense. If you read the Old Testament right, you should see that God was going to send a hero and that that hero was going to ultimately have to go to a cross. He was going to be so thoroughly identified with a lost and broken humanity that he was going to die in that humanity's place. He was going to live the life that they should have lived. He's going to die the death they deserve to die. And when he had fully satisfied God in regard to their sin, he would rise again to new life, offering them forgiveness, right? So he's saying that that if you read it carefully, that should all make sense. But here's the challenge. The only way to really have it make sense is to see the end of the story and go back to the beginning, right? Foreshadowing is subtle. A lot of times in movies and in books, you just don't see it, right? It helps prepare you for what's coming, but you don't see it preparing you. You just experience it. But then you go back and you read the book a second time or you watch a movie a second time. You're like, oh, hey, there's that, that foreshadows it. That leads up to it. See, when we come to the Old Testament, the cross casts a shadow across the entire story. And when they were coming forward in it, they saw the shadow, but they didn't know what it fully meant. They, they didn't know what it was a shadow of. It helped prepare them for it, but they couldn't fully interpret it. And what Jesus is saying to these guys is, look, man, I rose from the dead this morning. Time for you to go back and make sense of the story, right? I have now shown you what it was all driving toward. Go back and and figure this out. Now you know what the shadows point to. Now you know what the reality is. There's this bright light on this side of the cross, And it casts a shadow back across the story that you now have the ability to go back and understand. And so what does Jesus do? He takes him to school. He's like, all right, we got seven miles of walking here. Let's redeem the time, right? We're going to do a little, we're going to do a module here. And and in this module, I'm going to walk you through from Moses to to the prophets. Verse 27, and beginning with Moses... Moses wrote the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, right? So he begins in Genesis, the very beginning of the story. And all the prophets, that's the way the the Jews describe the rest of the Old Testament, right? So beginning with Genesis and ending with Malachi, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. I would have loved to have been on that walk. You know, wouldn't that have been cool? Jesus himself being like, hey, that's me. 
That, that, that's me. That's me, right? He's taking them back and showing them all the things that foreshadow him and lead to him and point to him. And, and we come now with our theological framework, right? We've, we've organized some of this, and, and so we, we've classified these things, right? Some of these things are what we call types and symbols. There are things that, that existed or took place in the Old Testament that symbolized and pointed to Jesus, right? When, when um, maybe you guys don't know the story, but one of the things we'll get into, Abraham was commanded by God to take his, his beloved son, Isaac, to the top of the mountain and, and, and kill him, okay? Foreshadowing? catch that part, right? We'll get into that some more. But, but yeah, Abraham foreshadows God and, and Isaac is symbolizing Jesus, right? And, and so Abraham takes Isaac up to the top of the mountain and is going to kill him in obedience to God. But in the last moment, God provides a substitute, right? Again, foreshadowing this idea of a substitutionary death. The substitute is a ram caught by its horns in the thicket right? The ram is caught by its strength in the thorns. Symbolically, man, we can look into that and see that, that man, that, that points us to Jesus, who was not captured by his weakness, but by his strength. He didn't go to the cross because he couldn't go anywhere else. He went to the cross because he chose to in obedience. He was captured by the strength of his obedience, and he was tangled in, in the briars, in the thorns of our sin. And he died in our place as our substitute. You see what I'm saying? Like that's symbolic, that's symbolism. That's, that's what we call typology, right? There, there's tons of typology and symbolism throughout the Old Testament that when you look at it after the cross, you're like, holy cow, that, that's Jesus, right? When Noah went through the flood in the ark, right? The ark's a boat, man. No, the ark is Jesus, right? Jesus takes those people through the judgment of God safely and delivers them to dry land on the other side. The ark absorbs the total judgment of God, but keeps those inside safe. Man, that is Jesus, the great deliverer, right? So so there's typology and symbolism. Sometimes it's foreshadowing in terms of, of people, right? Adam foreshadows Jesus. Adam was was what we call a representative head, right? The choice he made affected the rest of humanity, Right? And that's why Jesus is called the last Adam. He comes, Adam foreshadowed him. Jesus made a choice that as a representative of humanity, right? Where, where Adam disobeyed, Jesus obeyed. Where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. And where Adam gives death, Jesus offers life, right? And we can see that in Isaac and in Abraham and in David and in Noah and in Rahab and, and in all of these characters of the Old Testament that, that they foreshadow the hero, right? And sometimes there's direct prophecies, about Jesus, right? When you go into the Old Testament, you find out where he's going to be born in Bethlehem. You find out that he's going to be born of a virgin. You find out how he's going to enter the city. You find out that he's going to be crucified. You find out that he's going to be buried in a rich man's tomb. You find out that he's going to rise again. All of that stuff is directly prophesied in the Old Testament. But they were prophecies that didn't, they, they were right there, but they didn't make sense until after it happened. So we're going to look at that. We're going to walk through the Old Testament and take a look at these shadows and these, these prototypes and these, these, these symbols, and, 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 and we're going to look and see how it all points to Jesus. And that's essentially what he did with these two guys on, on the path to Emmaus. He's like, let me show you this stuff. We're going to walk through, and I'm going to show you how in the very beginning God promised to send a hero. Genesis chapter 3, he promised that he would send a seed of the woman, a human, who would crush the serpent's head, and, and even though the serpent would bruise his heel, that there would be this sense in which this hero would be wounded, but in wounding, he would destroy the power of the evil one, right? 
And from that promise on, there's an ongoing development of the story where, where this seed, this, this son is promised. And the promise is reiterated and reiterated and reiterated throughout the Old Testament until we see the birth of Jesus. It's all there, you guys. It's all there. And so as we get into this series, what I want to do is, is, first of all, unpack it so we can take a look at the Old Testament and see how it really is about Jesus, right? And I'm not really taking liberties with the text. That's what Jesus himself did with these two guys and, in fact, tells us to do. Don't be slow of heart. He says, I'm there. All you got to do is look. Now, before we dig into this, I just want you to take a minute and consider how amazing this is. I mean, what we're talking about here, you guys, this is supernatural. This is crazy stuff. It's hard enough for an individual to write a great story, right? It's really hard for someone to write a good story that's coherent from the beginning to end and has integrity in its character development and its plot development. Um, It's challenging. The Bible isn't like any other book ever written. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but it's worth reiterating. The Bible is unlike any book ever written. We don't worship the Bible. We worship the God of the Bible. But the Bible is an incredible book because it comes from an incredible God. You guys, this thing is not like anything else. It's 66 books, individual books, written by 40 different authors over about a 2,000-span period of time, three different languages. And it tells one story. There's no way to explain that. That makes no human sense. It is one of the most, it is the most incredible book on the face of the earth. And, and, and the only way that I can make sense of it is, is to say that there is, in fact, a single storyteller who's telling the story. That he is the one driving history toward a specific climax, a specific resolution, in which he sends a hero to redeem and restore what's been lost. That's incredible when we think about the nature and the way God gave us the Scripture, right? That God it basically inspired people to write this stuff down. They wrote out of their personalities. They wrote out of their experience. They wrote out of their knowledge. They used their own vocabulary. God didn't dictate it. He came in and inhabited their faculties and and moved in them as they wrote. That's crazy. You know, it's even crazier is that he did that with their very lives. Abraham went through life and he made hundreds of thousands of choices over the course of his life. Every single one of those choices he was free to make. But God was right there in every choice. That's why when we come to this, you guys, we're not just talking about dead people who lived a long time ago. We're not talking about dynamics that existed at one time. We're talking about the way God works today. Now, now we can theologically approach this in a lot of different ways. I like to use the term concurrence, this idea that, that God is sovereignly working out his will through the, through the agency of our free choices. In other words, we're living our lives. We make our choices. Nobody told you what to wear today. Nobody told you what to eat. Nobody told you you had to be here. Well, I hope not. Um, even if they did, I'm glad you're here. Um, but you made choices, and you bear the consequences of those choices, right? You make the choices, and you bear the consequences of those choices, the, the good or the bad, Right? But what this tells us is that God is, in fact, in those choices, working through those choices, working out his will through the craziness of your life. 
I don't know. It's crazy stuff, you guys, crazy stuff. I want to share with you a story that comes from my life because I was thinking through this. It's really hard. I can't go to, to Luke 24 and talk about the path to Emmaus without thinking about the way God has worked this out in my own life because I actually became a believer at a little college called Emmaus. It was called Emmaus Bible College. And I was thinking through this. I was just thinking about how God has worked this out in, in my life and how thankful I am for it. I was 17 when I went to college. Um, just graduated from high school. Rebellious, um, ignorant, arrogant, prideful, just angry at the world. Thought I was all that, you know. Thought I was super smart. And, and you know, I was really ticked at Christianity. Like, I was okay to God. I was, I was open to the idea of Jesus. But, man, I had been hurt by the church and by stupid people in the church. And was like, never, never will I be one of them, right? I was so arrogant. Never will I be one of them. Like in the, I didn't see my own hypocrisy and thinking how superior I was to them being superior to me, you know, that whole reverse thing. That's where I was. And I just wanted to get away. I mean, I was in a crazy home life at that point, and I just wanted to get. I was, I was raised in California. I'd never been out of California, man. That was my, that was my life. And, and mom had, had become a follower of Jesus, and she wanted me to go to this little college called Emmaus Bible College. It was in Dubuque, Iowa. I had never heard of Dubuque, Iowa. I didn't even know if Iowa existed. You know, it was like somewhere on the moon. Like, that's just not real. And I made the choice. You know, I had all these choices in front of me. I'm like, all right, I just want to get away from home. I just want to leave this place. I need to get some separation. All right, I'm in. I'm going to go. You know, so I hopped on a plane and I flew to Chicago and I got picked up by this little church bus and I got on board and we're riding there and I'm like, what the heck did I do? You know, I got my skateboard, my backpack and they're all singing Kumbaya. And I'm like, who are you people? You know, kidding about the Kumbaya, but not really. I mean, these guys were, were by and large raised in Christian homes and, and, um, were part of the Christian subculture, homeschooled and all that sort of stuff. And I just wasn't, I'm like, I don't even, I don't get this, you know? And, Got there, and, and um, I remember unloading. I was saying about this this morning. I was unloading and carrying my stuff in. Um, just disoriented, you know what I'm saying? Like, you get to a place like that, and you're just knocked off balance. I had never seen that many pigs or that much corn in my life. When you go to Iowa, it's pigs and corn, you know, and no ocean, so you have no idea how to orient yourself. That's how I always found my way around. I was like, where's the ocean? Okay, I can find my way from there. I mean, there's you can't do that with the Mississippi River. It just loops all over the place, you know? And, and, and so I'm like, and I remember walking in, and I remember, it's funny how I, walking across the, the, it was a basement door, walking across the room, I saw this tall girl with long brown curly hair. And there was no voice that said, when suddenly, you know, we locked eyes. We just had no idea that I was going to fall in love with her. No idea she was going to become my wife, you know? But in that moment, Things started and things were happening, right? But I want to focus on one specific when suddenly moment. There was uh, about two weeks in, I had pretty much alienated everybody at this point. Nobody knew what to do with me. Um, I had long hair and skateboard and they didn't even have rules against me yet because nobody like me had shown up. And um, I'm sitting at a table alone because I was just rude. And, um, and I look across and this guy is walking across the, the cafeteria toward me and he comes and joins me at my table. His name is Tom Dean. Um, I thought he was a professor. Go ahead and throw the slide up there. That's, that's Tom, you guys. Um, <laughs> that's Tom. So Tom Dean is walking across the room toward me, and I thought he was a professor. I thought he was um, 
I don't know, he had the shock of white hair, he had this bow tie, he looked like Orville Redenbacher, you know, and he's coming over and I'm like, you can tell when someone's beelining to sit at your table, you know, it's like, I don't know why you're coming over here. So I, I decided to just make him go away. So I burped at him. I, I, 17, you know, so I just took a big swig of my soda and I burped and I'm like, you know, not, not my hands were up. I'm like, you know, whatever, dude. And he looked at me, it was awesome. He looked at me, he's like, son, I'm like, son, he's like, son, you did that wrong. What are you talking about? And he goes like this. I remember it was hilarious. Sticks his hand right here. He goes, you got to use your diaphragm. And he belches like really loud. Like not, I'm not even making this up. I mean, he belches really loud, so loud that everybody in the surrounding tables heard this and were looking and I don't get embarrassed, but my ears were like glowing. I could feel them like, holy cow, you know, that, that whoa. And I'm like, who are you? You know, not really, but that's where we go. You know, it's like, who who are you? It turns out he's not a professor. He's a, he's a 59-year-old freshman. He had spent his life on the bridge circuit gambling. That's how he made his living, playing cards. He had been a drunk his whole life. Bourbon. But he came to the Lord late in his life. And, and after he came to the Lord, he walked away from the gambling and he walked away from the alcohol. And he was like, I'm going to go to, a, I'm gonna go to this Christian college and I'm going to learn specifically Greek and Hebrew and maybe someday I'll get to start. That was his dream, was someday he would start a Christian college where he could work with, with young people. What's hilarious, we were taking, I was 17, I was an unbeliever. I didn't know what I was doing, but I wanted, I was, I was just determined to take Greek. And, and the professor, I don't know, it was like a 6 a.m. class, an obscenely early class, but he did that so nobody would come. Like only the serious students were there. So I'm in there with him and, and we would study together. And he was just, he was brilliant. I mean, he just had an incredible mind. And, and, and I, I, I fell in love with him. I mean, honestly, he was like this older guy. He was like a dad, you know, like something I had been craving for a long time. And he spent time with me and I loved everything about him. I mean, look at him. I mean, that's, he did that on purpose. <laughs> really? Like when the camera snapped, he, he did that because he just, he enjoyed being different. He was determined to be himself. He, he, he was like a nonconformist in all the right ways. You know what I'm saying? Like, like he wasn't there to impress anybody. He just was himself he brushed his teeth with baking soda. And he, so he influenced me. And I, my, art, my heart opened to him in ways that it hadn't with anybody else. And one night I'm talking with him and I'm like, dude, what, what's your favorite book in the Bible? And, and he said, the book of Hebrews. And that's where I sat. I sat down that night and I read the book of Hebrews. It was the first book I ever read in the Bible. I don't recommend it. Not Hebrews, not to start. That was crazy. I mean, really, was, I didn't understand 90% of it, but God was in it. And as I read through it, the Spirit of God brought the Scripture life to me. And the one thing that was very clear to me is that by the time I got to the end of that book, it was very clear to me that Jesus was better. I didn't understand anything, but I understood Jesus was better. And I believed that night. And I knew when I got to the end of that book, my life would never be the same, that I had to stop running that this was, this was all new. And, and Tom had a huge impact on that. Now, who brought Tom to that college? Who brought me to that college? I could have gone any number of directions. I could have gone, well, not really. <laughs> I was a horrible student. I didn't have tons of options, but I could have gone, you know, just gone to work or whatever, you know. Um, <laughs> but I chose to go, right? 
and he chose to go, and God brought him to the Lord late in his life. And why did that happen? Because God was in the story. Because God was going to tell a better story for my life than I was going to tell for myself. I would have destroyed myself. Either through complete failure or complete success, I would have destroyed myself. I have no doubt about it because I was a wreck. But God was like, I got a divine appointment for you. I'm going to give you an invitation to grace. And I believed. Tom died my second year. He had a brain tumor nobody knew about. And, And he passed away um, they announced it at our Christmas banquet my second year. I was dating Lauren by then. And I remember when they announced it, I was just sobbing, which I hate to cry in public. I hate it. <laughs> um, but I knew, even as I sobbed, that I should be thankful. Even as I was full of sorrow, that I should be full of joy. <laughs> because God had a purpose in that. I was so thankful. See, there are so many of these when suddenly moments that occur to us, and, and a lot of times we don't even see them. We don't even know God's there doing this thing. But he is. And he's telling his story, and he's inviting us to faith. And, and as I look at my life flowing out of that, you know, like there was, a, there was that moment when it was when suddenly, holy cow, I think I like this girl, Lauren. And moving to dating and asking her to marry me. And God has given us three kids. And and I'm watching them now make their choices. They're becoming independent, autonomous adults, making their choices in life. But seeing that God is telling for them a story of redemption and restoration. That they're moving into that same stream that has so blessed me. And and, and then the, the crazy twists and turns that come with life. If you would have asked me six years ago where I would have been, this is the last place I would have said. I had no desire to be a pastor. I wasn't going to plant a church. That wasn't on the radar. But as I followed, it popped up. <laughs> and, I, and God said, this is what I want you to do. And I did it. And I can't even tell you how rich How thankful I am. God is telling for me a better story than I would have ever told for myself. And I'm telling you that that's the way God works today. It's not just the way he did it back then. He is involved in your life right now. He is involved with the purpose of redeeming and restoring to take broken, sinful, prideful people and set them free into the joy of humility. To let God be the center instead of themselves. You know, as I was, as I was writing this and I was thinking about this, um, and even as I preach it, honestly, there's that sense in which um, my heart burns within me um, you know, that's what it said happened to Cleopas and his friend, right? In uh, verse 32, it says, they looked at each other after Jesus revealed who he was. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? You know what that burning of the heart is? 
It's the soul's response to grace. The outpouring of God's unconditional acceptance, God's purpose and plan to bless you in ways you don't deserve and could never claim. It's the soul coming into the light of God's grace and simply responding by burning in its warmth. When we get the kind of God we follow, when we get his purpose to work through the craziness of life, to take our lives and make them something glorious, something free, something better than we could ever claim or achieve for ourselves. When we simply come to trust him, our hearts burn with gratitude. with a joy. So here's the deal. As we move forward through this series, whether it's David or Abraham or Rahab or whoever it is, man, it's the same God working the same way. And if somebody were to someday write down our stories, they'd read a lot like the Bible. Because it's the same God at work in the same broken people. And so we should have the same hope and the same expectation of blessing and the same um, uh, passion to follow. Because here's the deal. In a sense, we're all on a road to Emmaus. This is where I'm going to go back to to Luke 24 and that kind of pull back and, and look at that as a symbol. We're all on a road to Emmaus, right? We don't know where Emmaus the city actually is. Emmaus the city, we have a general idea of where it's actually located, but, but we don't know where to put it on a map. We don't know exactly where it is. And I love that because the reality is we're all on a road to Emmaus. They were going to Emmaus because they thought when they got there, they were going to find what they were looking for, whatever it was. That whatever, when they got there, there was going to be something there that would complete them and give them what they were looking for. And Jesus hijacked the trip. <laughs> That's you, and that's me. We're on our path. We have this place identified where we want to go because we think when we get there, it's going to be what we need it to be, that it'll do for us something we want it to do, and and maybe it will. But God's going to hijack your trip for his glory and for your good. Whatever that thing is that you're working toward, it's not that it's bad or that he'll take it away. He's going to meet you on your path and he's going to give you an invitation to join him in his redemptive work. You need to hear that it is invitation. God's going to do his redemptive work whether you want to join him or not. He will redeem and restore. He will change the course of human history to his plot line. And all things will be consummated at one point with him at the glorious center. And you have the choice whether or not you'll come in line with that redemptive flow, with that work, or to reject it. And the reality is we have to continually struggle to come in line with it. You know why? Because we don't want to trust him. We don't want him hijacking our story. (laughs) Because we've decided where we want to go and what we want to be and what we want to do. I still do. You know, it's like, I'm not like, oh, look, Steve's so spiritual. I, like, I do that with the church, right? Like, I set goals, and I'm like moving, and I'm like, and then God steps in and is like, nah, <laughs> we're going to redirect. This is where you're going to go, and this is what we're going to do, and this is who you're going to be. 
And I have to continually say, you're the center, not me. I trust you with this thing, not myself. See, that's the problem is that we want to tell our own stories. We want to be the author of our own blessings. We want to define the terms on which we live our lives. And that's the antithesis of faith, the exact opposite of faith. Faith comes and says, you're the great storyteller. You know better than I do. How do we come to a place where we trust him to do that? Well, I think we have to come to it the same place that these guys came to it. If if you look back at um, verse 30, I love this. Jesus goes into dinner with them in verse 30 and says, When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave to them, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Why did they wait until he broke the bread? To open their eyes for them to be like, oh, we've been Jesus the whole time. You know, like, why did he wait till then? What, what's significant about the breaking of bread? Again, the playfulness of the storytelling of God. Four nights earlier, Jesus had his last supper with his disciples. And at that last supper, he broke the bread and he said to them, I want you to do this from now on. Every time you break this bread, I want you to remember that it represents my broken body. See, what we see here is that the only way to understand the hand of God is to approach God through the cross. We have to come through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus to understand the heart of God. And when we come through the cross, it frees us to follow the God of the cross. You know why? Because if the cross doesn't lead us to trust God, nothing will. If the cross doesn't lead us to love God, nothing will. Because on the cross, we see God so fully identified with our rebellion, our sin, our shame, that he died in our place. You guys, when we're suffering, how do we see that as part of God's plan for our lives? The only way we can is if we see that coming from the hand of a suffering God. Romans 8, 28, people quote that all the time. For God, <laughs> I was going to quote John three sixteen. 16. Um, God works all things together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. God works all things together for the good. Uh, in fact, it's been turned into kind of a popular worship song. God works all in the, in the chorus. God works all things together for my good, for my good, for my good. And honestly, that drives me nuts. You know why? Because it doesn't say God works all things together for my good. It says God works all things together for the good. There is a good ending to the story. It is his ending in which he is the glorious center and we revolve around him. But there are times when the good doesn't seem very good to me. And it is hard and it is painful. And I have to trust that there is a greater good than my temporary comfort and happiness. That God has a greater purpose And the only way I can come to trust God like that is to see him as the God of the cross. He doesn't invite us to suffer in any way that he has not preceded us and suffered with us. And even as we suffer, he's there suffering. But it's part of the way he will ultimately turn the entire story to a story of redemption and restoration. He will work all things together for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those who love God. 
So when life is confusing and things are chaotic and when things hurt and when you have all the choices in front of you and none of them are attractive, can you still trust God to be the storyteller? Can you still trust that even if you don't know what you're doing, but you have to move forward, so you move forward in complete confusion, that God's not confused? That even though you have no idea how to go, He knows. And He is concurrently working out His will with your choices. Can you rest in that kind of faith? There's always an invitation in front of us to trust. As the Bible puts it, to walk in faith. And rest in him as the great storyteller instead of ourselves. You guys, if we become a people that live like that, we'll be free. We'll be joyful. We will be marked by a kind of hope and purpose in our lives that is completely inexplicable to anybody who doesn't understand and follow Jesus. But we have to learn to follow. We have to grow in faith. And so as we move into this series, what I want to do is invite you to not just study their story, but study your story and theirs. When we see Abraham losing his homeland, when we see Rahab the harlot rejected and and despised by people, when we see people betrayed, when we see people hurting, look and see the hand of God's gracious sovereignty turning their story to glory so that you can learn to see his hand of sovereignty turning your story to glory. Because our lives are messy and they're glorious and they're full of joy and they're full of pain and they're unpredictable. But our hope isn't in our ability to take our lives where we want them to be. Our hope is in the God who ultimately will turn our lives to his glory and our joy. Because we can trust him with our story. Because he will tell a better story for us than we would tell for ourselves.